turned uh, to the word now. Let, uh, let me pose this question. Is the Bible down on women uh, and children? This is something for you to think about as you grow up and read, read the scriptures. The Bible, the, does the Bible like, not like girls? They have a grown-up term for this. Is the Bible misogynist? You know, you get, the Bible gets this rap these days that is sort of like down on women or, or sees women as second class. I have a quote here from Alan Bloom. This is typical quote. This classics professor. We had it in the beginning of your bulletin. He says this, All literature up to today is sexist. The muses never sing to the poets about liberated women. It's the same old chanson from the Bible and Homer through Joyce and Proust, unquote. So he's just throwing the Bible in with all this other literature. It's just sexist. Is that really true about the Bible? Well, let me ask you a question. And uh, maybe you could raise your hand. Would you raise your hand if you could tell me if you know who the character Hannah is in the Bible. If you know that biblical character, raise your hand. Raise it high, please, so I could see. Let's all see. All the hands of the people who could say what Hannah is. Look around, please. Okay, thank you. Let me ask you, let me ask you another question. I want you to raise your hand if you could tell me who Elkanah is in the Bible. You know who Elkanah is, honestly, raise your hand. Okay, look around. A few hands, but not like there was for Hannah. Isn't that interesting? You know the wife, but not the husband. You know what's going on. You, you are familiar with the wife, very important wife, but not the husband. What does that tell you? What does that say, do you think? Is the Bible really a place where women are not prominent? Well, let's answer that, book, that, that question today by opening the book of Samuel together. Now that we've kind of done a tour through it, let's open it again with that question on our minds. The book of Samuel is, is about the covenant of dynasty, as I, as I, as I have repeatedly told you repeatedly brought out, a covenant of providing righteous rule for God's people through all generations. This is the last great covenant of the Old Testament that God forges in this period of time, in this period of history. And it's interesting to me that the story of this great covenant begins with a woman. It begins with a statement about this woman and her desire, unmet desire, for having children. And the story that God wants to tell us requires a birth. And this is the one who gives birth to the kingmaker. The first player in God's great drama here is a woman. In bringing this new covenant starts with a woman. And um, children, the, the first picture you're going to be drawing, although I don't want you to draw it yet because we're about to read the scripture. We're about to have the scripture read, so hold on until we read the scripture. But that first drawing you're going to draw is of this woman, of Hannah, because she gives birth to the institution of kingship in Israel. Let's, let's hear about it. 
I'm going to ask Amanda to come up and read to us some selections from 1 Samuel 1 and 2. Would you stand with me as we hear the scriptures? There we go. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bowls, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here, praying to the Lord. For this child I have prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Continuing in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hunger, hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Continuing in verse 18, but Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing the linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, the Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that when she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. This microphone's taking a beating today. All right. Beautiful passage, beautiful prayer from Hannah. So how important is woman to what God is doing. Well, let me tell you something. If you really want to know what's going to happen in the book of Samuel, you should turn to this passage, to chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, to this prayer, this song of this woman, Hannah, because she tells you, actually, what's going to happen. At the beginning of the book, at the beginning, really, of her story, she tells us what's going to happen, really, through the next century through this this is a time period we're talking about that the book of samuel covers about 1120 to about 970 so about 150 years bc and over the coming decades we will see these things that she talks about come to pass starting with verse one if you look at it with me 
In verse 1, what does she say? I will smile at my enemy. Well, who's her enemy? Well, in this case, you remember the story that we looked at. It was her rival wife was her enemy. And she was able to smile at her enemy in the children that she had. And verse 2, she talks about God's holiness. If there's one thing that we see clearly through this book, it is that God is holy. You do not assault uh, his holiness. He is holy and separate as God. Verse 3, he weighs the actions of the arrogant. So look out, Eli's sons. Look out, Saul. Even look out, David, when you become arrogant because your actions will be weighed in this book. And verse 4, the bows of the mighty will be broken. Well, whose bows? The Philistines' bows. The, the, the Philistines were the ones there who had the mighty bows. And what we'll see over the next decades is, is their, their bows will be decisively broken. And by the way, the prize for today, children, if you do your drawings and you do what uh, you need to do, that pro, the prize, it's, it's going to be a great bow. It's going to be a great thing here. But we want to just uh, remind you, parents, to... Maybe bring this home and play with it at home because it really is actually a mighty toy. And uh, we'd rather it be played with under supervision. But it's a mighty bow to stand for the mighty bows of the, of the Philistines that are going to be broken. And that's what we're going to see happen in this book. Right? And it goes on. You know, the stumble... Those who stumble will gird on strength. Where do we see that happen? David stumbles in, his, in trying to wear Saul's armor, right? He can't do it. He stumbles in that. But God girds him with strength to kill the giant. You see that happen in the book. Verses 5 through 8, you have all these images of the reversal of fortunes that God will lift up and he'll put down. That's what we see happening throughout the book is a reversal of fortunes between Eli and Samuel. A reversal of fortune between Saul and David, a reversal of fortunes, right? Even verse 6, you know, he says, uh, Hannah says, he brings down to the grave and he raises up. Well, where do we see that happen? It actually happens in the book. Her son grows up and then God brings him to the grave. And, and we see Samuel die. He's brought to the grave. And then we turn around and there's Samuel again. <laughs> We see Samuel, after he has died, raised up from the grave. It's right here. She talks about this. This is what's going to happen. So, you know, if you want to see what happens in the book, you know, if you're just reading through the book of Samuel, it's great to keep Hannah's prayer next to you to see what happens. Amazing. It's so prophetic in what she utters here. In fact, you know, non-believing scholars, they look at this passage, this particular passage, of, of the scripture of Hannah's song, and they say, well, this, they date, they date it to a much later period. They say this comes from a much later period uh, than, uh, you know, the time of Hannah when she was supposed to have lived. It, it was a much later time. Because they look and see, you know, you can look in, um, there in verse 8 is implied that there's going to be a king. Talking about the, the prince and the throne. In verse 10, it's explicit. Talks about the king 
God's king in Israel. Well, in Hannah's time, there's no king. There's no king at this time. Nobody's even talking about a king. You know, there's no movement for a king. And here she is talking about Israel's king. So they say it must have come from a later period. Now, the problem with that argument, friends, is that stylistically, the words of Hannah's prayer here fit right into the time period in which she's purported to live. This is Iron Age 1. In the titles that she used, the style of the language dates definitely to Iron Age 1, right in Hannah's period. So the only, the only reason you would say, well, this must come from a later period is if you were handicapped by unbelief. Rather, I would say to you, what we're getting here is a very perceptive woman. She knows, Hannah discerns the times. And she knows that Yahweh is bringing a revolution on the elites. He is casting down oppression and wickedness. He is raising up the poor. He is crafting a king. She sees it. The woman sees it. And you know, if you, we take a step back, that's what we see. This is a feature of the book of Samuel. If you look at kind of the most important themes, the most important things that are going on in Samuel, they are introduced through the mouth of a woman. You can go forward to Phineas's wife. And as she is giving birth, she names her child, and she names her child in a way that shows what's going on in Israel. She calls him Ichabod, the glory is departed. I mean, what a woman. I don't know if you've ever had a baby, but it's kind of distracting, right? Those of you who are considering having babies, I don't know, Lyndon, are you, are you concerned about world events when you're having your baby? Do you think you're going to be thinking about what's, what's going on in the nation when you're having your baby? No, I get a no. You don't think so? <laughs> I don't either. And yet this woman, as she's having her baby, as she's dying, she is giving, giving the, the definitive word of what is on Israel at that time. It's doom. She names him Ichabod comes through the mouth of a woman under duress. You go ahead to Abigail, another woman who gives the promises of Yahweh to the king, to the, to the coming king. Introduces, really, themes in the book. You go to the wise woman of Tekoa, who because of her, Absalom returns to the kingdom. There's hope, actually, at that moment for the future of the kingdom. Even going ahead to Bathsheba, who is the one who ensures the rightful heir to the kingdom. All of these, like some of the most important themes of the book, introduced through the mouth of women. In fact, if we took a step back, I think we'd see this as well throughout the scriptures. Women are quite prominent in the scriptures. In contrast to the cultures around them in contrast to the holy books around them. So I have another quotation here from another professor. This is, this is a professor of ancient Jewish history, Gary Rensberg. And this is the way he puts it. And I love this quotation because I think he really nails it. This is what Rensberg says, quote, open your Bible at random and you will notice something striking. Female characters abound. And it's not simply a lot of women it's a lot of strong women. These women 
are the antithesis of what we might expect from a patriarchal society. They're not passive, demure, timid. He says, no, but they're, he goes on, they're active, bold, fearless, assertive. They're also not what we, we would expect based on contemporaneous Near Eastern literature in which women generally do not play leading roles in the narrative, unquote. That's exactly right. That is a better characterization of the Bible. So friends, we put all this, we, we let all this, we lay it before us, and we need to reckon with this. The definitive interpretation of one of the biggest changes in history comes through the voice, the mouth of a woman. Of a woman. What does that mean for us? Do we have the voice of the feminine as we run our homes, as we run our church? Are we walking in a way that acknowledges the Spirit's work through women? Now, that happens in different ways. I think we, should, we need to always be asking that in our personal lives, if we're men, and in our corporate lives together as well. And churches do that in different ways, explicitly, implicitly. I'll tell you what we do here is we have women on staff. If you really want to know how this church is run, we have women on staff here to whom we delegate um, a great deal. So if you really want to know what goes on in the innards of how this, this church runs, you know, talk to anybody on our staff, most of whom are women, and ask them for the real scoop. And we set things up this way because of this very principle of the scriptures. In order to have the voice of the woman uh, in, the, in the running of things. In a previous church where I was at, I set up something to advise our elders, it's a session as a Presbyterian church called a woman's council, so that we could have um, a woman's voice in that way. And churches do that differently. I know another church, a friend of mine, where that happens as well. There's a women's council. To, to another way to get this principle that I'm talking about here. Just like in a family, you know, it's a very foolish, foolish husband who is not soliciting and consulting his wife on matters of import as things go down. Are we allowing the feminine prophetic in our lives? That's the first thing. So that is half the story. The other half is Samuel. The man-child is brought forth to be a kingmaker. And so children, if you're doing your drawings, you, this is what you want to draw. You want to draw a picture of Samuel coming forth as the kingmaker in this story to lead, to point, to, to point Israel forward to God's plan, to bring forth the vision for them. And it's significant, friends. It wasn't a daughter that was brought forth to make kingship happen. It was a son. And that son has a calling, a very important calling. In fact, if you look at Samuel's name, one way in which to derive the name Samuel, as etymologists look at it, is heard of God. Heard of God. And that seems to fit in the story. Hannah was heard by God in praying for him, and then he heard from God when God spoke. In the next chapter, 
uh, in chapter three, it's Samuel who hears God for the nation. And so God puts him in that place to direct the covenant community in the affairs, in his affairs through the guy. And as the man-child grows in stature, he needs to apprehend that mission in the story of the coming of the king. And while many men fail in the book of Samuel, Samuel rises to this occasion. Very important for the guy. And so, you know, if we take another step back beyond Samuel, we see that this is true in general in the Bible. There are distinctions that God makes for men. God only calls men to be priests in the covenant community. Over the entire Old Testament period, that's 2,000 years of history, only priests throughout that whole time. Why would that be so? Because there is a distinction that God makes, not only for women, but also for men in the story, in his unfolding story. Only priests. Now, sometimes you hear it said, well, he kind of had to do that back then because it was, you know, it's such a patriarchal society. And you, know, you had this patriarchal, you know, oppression going on all around them, and that was just the culture. And, you know, because Israel's heart was so hardened and they had this patriarchal thing that God had to do it that way. But if God had his druthers, he would have had women priests too. And maybe he could have brought, bring that in at a later time, reform. Okay? It was just a cultural pressure of patriarchy that kept them from having women priests. That's what, that's what really should have happened. The problem with that argument, friends, is that it is exactly wrong. It is exactly wrong. Because in all of the cultures around Israel, there were priestesses. All of them. You look at cultures near to Israel, right next door. You look at cultures far away, priestesses. All through this long period of the Old Testament, you had priestesses. So it would have been the easiest thing in the world, culturally, for Israel to have priestesses. Easiest thing in the world, because all the cultures around them had female priests, not Israel. Why? Why? Why would God do that? He only calls men to be kings in Israel. You only have men kings, except, you know, there are some usurpers. But God only calls them men to be king. Why? Why? Why does he do that? It's not because women are less able. This is not a matter of gifting. Instead, it's because of what God wanted to do in the covenant community, in the relationship between the two. Between the two of them. You know, I was once asked by a single guy, it was like, I would like to become more of a man. This is a single guy who doesn't have you know, a wife or a family. He's like, how do I take a step forward in manhood? How do I become more, uh, more in my masculinity? I said, you know what you should do? You should leave worship. You should become a liturgist for the sake of your sisters. This was not something he was like, prone to do. It wasn't something that he was like, yeah, this doesn't really feel like it's up my alley. I said, yeah, but you need to find ways to take responsibility in your life for the women in your life. Take responsibility for your sisters. You, you should become, you know, do liturgy. And he did. 
you know, in, in our system here, we have a system where we have the guys that come forth, lead us in worship, and he did. And you talk to him today, he'll look back at that and tell you this was, a, this was an important step in his manhood in the covenant because of what he was doing there in the covenant community. We get to the New Testament, we have Jesus, he chooses his 12. And he chooses the 12 to be men, his 12 apostles. Now, this is a time for reform, you know. Jesus is choosing 12 to reconstitute the people of God. Just like the 12 tribes, he chooses that number. He's, he is now reconstituting the people of God. This would be the time if he had to say, okay, now we're going to have a reform. Now we're going to step out of this kind of patriarchalism. He doesn't do that. Just chooses guys. Women were traveling with him. He had women certainly participating in the kingdom there. Could have, made, could have said, we chose you. Doesn't do that. Why? There's something that God has for the men to do. So clearly, friends, in the whole Bible, we can see a distinction in the way in which women and men are to love each other in the covenant community. What does that mean for us? I say we, we need to be calling forth men to get the mission, to get the mission for your family, to get the mission for your church, to get the mission for your marriage. We need to call forth men to be kingmakers, just as Samuel. And you know what I would say to you women while uh, some of these guys are away on a retreat? <laughs> I'll talk to you. Don't take this from them. Don't take this away from them. Or else you end up kind of cutting off the nose to spite the face. If you obliterate gender distinction, don't be surprised if within a generation you end up with responsibility shirking, initiative not taking, wimps on your hands. Because that's the way it goes. I know many women who would like men in their lives to, to take more responsibility, to be more responsible. Do you know, you can't get responsibility without authority. You can't get responsibility without giving authority. It doesn't, you can't do that. The two need to go together. When you don't have the two go together, then you have problems, right? To extend responsibility without authority, it's, you know, that's what gets policemen killed. That's what gets school teachers tied up in knots. They give responsibility but without the authority to do it. That's what frustrates you at work, right? We have a name for that, right? It's called poor management. You give, a, give someone responsibility without authority. They, the two need to go together. So call forth men to be kingmakers, to hear God through the scriptures, to get the vision, to lead in God's purposes. Now, you know I'll say a little bit more about this because I think for many, this is very difficult. To talk about this is, is, is a real, it causes a real struggle because you feel like, if you're a woman maybe, that this assaults your equality. 
some women feel like God making these distinctions and relationship in the story of his people, it somehow assaults your equality. Because you are equal in value. You are equal in importance before God. And you know that. And so to voluntarily like surrender a prerogative in some situations, it makes you feel unequal. To have any position that a man, any position where a man should have it and a woman maybe shouldn't or doesn't take it, that assaults your equality. I, I understand that. But I would say to you, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to if you and your importance are respected. And I know that as, as I say that, even so, some of you will say, well, that's, that's easy to you to say because you're a man. You don't know what it's like to be a woman. You, don't, you have no idea what it's like to be in my situation, so you can't even say that because you don't know a thing about what it's like to be in this position. Actually, though, I think I do. I think I do. Now, I'm not a woman. I've never been a woman. I have no plans to become a woman, just to reassure you where I'm coming from. But I'll tell you what I have become. I've become an associate pastor. And when I stepped into this position as associate pastor to a senior pastor, I knew something for sure. I knew that a big part of, of what I was doing, my place, was to not be in charge. And I knew that because I had been a lead pastor. I had been a senior pastor with pastoral staff reporting to me. When I came here, I had one thing straight, that I was here not to be in charge, but my call was to promote the senior pastor and his vision. It wasn't because I couldn't do it, but that was my call to surrender prerogative. And I was very clear on that from the very beginning. It's one thing I realized. This was my place to not be in charge. And you know what, let me tell you, it did not assault my equality. I didn't feel like, you know what, I don't, I'm not unequal before God because I have this mission. Now it helped that the senior pastor here appreciated my gifts, he treated me as important, but my job was to submit. And sometimes, you know, just being a person made in God's image, I had certain things that were important to me, and I brought them to my senior pastor. And, you know, sometimes he, had, he heard me, sometimes he adjusted, sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he said, you know, that's not the way we're going to go. That's not what we do here. It's not how we do things here. Sometimes I disagreed, like I looked at what was going on, I looked at what he was doing, and I just said to myself, you know, that's not the way I would go. That's not how I would do things. But I submitted. But you know what really helped me in those moments? You know what really helped me? It was knowing that I was called to not be in charge. That really helped me. 
Because then I could trust God. I could say, okay, I can see his situation. It's not exactly what I would do, but you know what? It's not my call. This didn't happen a lot because we were very much on the same page as far as wanting God's glory for this church and wanting people to grow in Christ. Didn't happen a lot, but it did happen at times. What really helped me is being able to say, you know what? I can see I'm called here to not be in charge, so it's not my call. And that's one of the reasons it works so well between me and the senior pastor. And by the way, it did work very well between me and Pastor Darren here. But you know why I submitted? Because of the love I had for, the, for my senior pastor. You know, all this gender stuff, it is all about relationship. I wanted to promote him. I wanted to see his vision succeed for him. Did not assault my equality and enriched my relationship. So let's call our men to be kingmakers. All right. Let me, let me complete this picture of this drama because we need to give weight to these words of this woman. Hannah asks, and she is given. She asks for a child, and really, she's given a miracle. Miraculous birth, this child. And so, children, you're going to be drawing now how Hannah brings her son to Shiloh. It's the next drawing. So Hannah, if you follow the story, she, she, she prays to God for this child. She has given this child. And then what does she need to do? She needs to give her child to the Lord. And she knew it. She knew, being the woman that she was, she had to give her child to the Lord for the kingdom to come. And every mother really needs to go through this drama, enter into this same drama. You have this miracle that you're given. And for some of you, I know, you've had trouble and it's been difficult and sometimes God changes that story and he gives you this child and it's a miracle. Some of you, it really is a miracle. It's miraculous. And what do you need to do? At a certain point, you need to recognize that you need to give this child back for the work of the Lord. Because if Hannah did not give Samuel up, he would not have become the prophet. The wickedness of the priesthood would have continued and there would be no one to anoint the king, no one to guide the tribes into, a, into monarchy. So her words, the words of this mother are, are very weighty when she talks about the anointed one in verse five there in chapter two in verse five, she talks about the anointed one. She talks about how this anointed one will come. And those words are so weighty. They even go beyond this period of history, these 150 years to a time in the future. You notice she says, the barren, back to her prophetic song, the barren has born seven. See that in verse five, the barren has born seven. Well, who's the barren in the story? It's her, it's Hannah. She's saying the barren has born seven. And that actually happens to her. If you read on, we find that Samuel has other, bro other brothers and sisters, other siblings. Verse 21, he actually has five of them. So Hannah 
And the story actually ends up bearing six. But she says, there will be seven. There must be another one, an anointed one, to come to complete that through a supernatural birth. That's what I mean when her words carry weight. They carry weight all the way up to Luke chapter 2, where we meet another Hannah. She's called Anna in Luke chapter 2, but actually it's the same name, Hannah. Hannah, Anna, same name. It's another prophetess who is again attending to a supernatural birth. Only this time, it's the birth of the Messiah. So the new prophetess, the new Hannah, in God's story, in the temple, greets and welcomes the seventh child. And if you notice, God does the same story because he gives this child again through a miracle for our sake, for the sake of the kingdom. And this new mother, right before this in Luke chapter 1, the mother of the seventh, Mary, also gives us a prayer. She prays a prayer as well that interprets the new covenant that God is bringing on the earth. And this covenant, friends, is the covenant of our salvation. Again, through this woman. And then she has to do the same thing. She has to give her child for the sake of the kingdom. And she knows it. Mary knows it, that a sword is going to pierce her heart also. And it does, and she does. Because she knew the final king had to come, the real king, to righteously rule forever. You see, friends, God accomplishes our salvation through a very thoroughly gendered story. This is how he works. Again, it was a man apprehending the mission, coming through the word and the sacrifice of a woman. Let us stand and worship.